today's episode, we are doing a follow-up to last week's episode where we discussed the climate crisis, and we're really lucky because now we have a physician who works in this field with us today. And by us, I guess I mean myself, because unfortunately, Allie can't be with us this evening. She is attending her grandmother's funeral, and that's a sad reason to not be here, but we miss her very much. And don't worry, her grandmother had a really long and lovely life and made it to the age of 99. So that's something to be celebrated as well. So this evening, we have Dr. Joel Charles with us. And he is a rural family medicine doctor who has extra training, a master's in public health where he studied climate change. And presently, he leads the Wisconsin Health Professionals for Climate Action. And do you want to tell us a little more about yourself and what you do presently? Yeah, thanks for having me, Yana. Uh, so mainly, I obviously work in clinic uh, doing full spectrum family medicine, so primary care kids, adults. Um, I do deliveries, um, take care of prenatal patients. I take care of patients at the hospital. Um, and then in my free time, I also, um, as you mentioned, help lead Wisconsin Health Professionals for Climate Action. The goal of that really is to organize health professionals to protect vulnerable patients from climate change and advocate for equitable policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's really important. I haven't ever really met anyone who does that before or been introduced to anyone, so clearly it's a area of need. Um, so this is an interesting pathway. What led you specifically to the, you know, your whole path and what led you to then the climate change concern specifically? Yeah, um, so... In my med school, so I went to the University of Wisconsin, and social determinants of health was something that we talked about a lot. Just this idea that the majority of people's health are, is decided outside of the four walls of the clinic. You know, things like is the air they clean, the air they breathe clean, do they have access to healthy food, do they have access to ways to mm -hmm. be physically active, things like that. And our current energy systems strongly impact that and people are breathing polluted air essentially because of burning fossil fuels. But then also mm -hmm. climate change threatens all the foundations for our health. All these gains we've made in the last 150 years are threatened by climate change. So it was really clear that climate change is the major public health threat of the 21st century. That was reinforced for me when I did my master's in public health and, and focus on climate change specifically. But it became a lot more real for me when I did residency in Sonoma County um, because we were just constantly getting hit by wildfires. And um, in fact, the, the residency that I worked at, the summer I finished, the Tubbs fire came in and burned a lot of Santa Rosa, including the residency, the clinic that I've been working at. Wow. Um, and then I moved back to Wisconsin, and um, my son was born on a day of unprecedented flooding in my area. Uh, we'd just been getting worse and worse flooding. Um, and that same day, a lot of my patients were flooded out of their houses. And so I just kind of feel like I've been getting chased by climate change. And um, 
both for my son and for my patients. I really want to make the world a safer place for them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like it's very dependent on where people live. And in some areas, you can ignore it a little more, but you certainly can if there's wildfires and floods in your areas. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and with your Wisconsin Health Professionals for Climate Action, what are you guys working on right now? What are you doing? So I'm really excited about this group. Um, so first, I'll just tell you a little bit more. So we're sort of a state affiliate of a group called the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health, which is a group out of um, George Mason University that's doing a lot to help catalyze the formation of these state-based groups all over the country. Mm -hmm. Most of those groups are called Clinicians for Climate Action. So there are groups in Virginia, Ohio, uh, Michigan starting one, Montana, uh, Minnesota, a bunch Georgia, a bunch of different groups. So for people who are interested, they should look to see if they have one of these chapters in their state. But we're doing a lot of different things. We're really trying to approach this from every possible angle. But the biggest thing we're working on right now is pre-election activities. So we are a nonpartisan group. Uh, however, that doesn't mean we don't get involved with policy. So one of the things that we're pushing right now, in addition to just registering, we're working on trying mm -hmm. to help doctors register people to vote, is we have built a messaging guide uh, mm -hmm. to give to candidates so they know how to talk about the health impacts of climate change. And to show them the polling that that's a very effective message, first of all. And second of all, that the polling shows that the public broadly is very supportive of action on climate change. So we're sort of handing them this tool saying, here's how you can talk about this. Here's why you should talk about this. And we're trying to get that in front of every candidate in the state in the run up to this election through mm -hmm. health professionals in their district. That's awesome because as we talked about in our last episode, we think this election is super important. And I'm also glad that you were able to, you know, name something that people can join because I think one of the things that I know that Allie and I were left sort of having to research on our own after our last episode is like what's something that we could join that's maybe local to our area mm -hmm. that could help with some of the, you know, uh, local politics or stuff like that and have a good impact. So to know that there's groups specifically for clinicians that people can join Absolutely. is really exciting. And it's really so important. So I'm going to oh, look up my own state after this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so important to have a specific, meaningful action you can take when you're thinking about climate change because it's a topic where it's really easy to fall into despair. So it's really yes. important to have something productive to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've noticed that myself, which um, learning the stuff that I have the past couple of weeks by talking just now to you and then to our prior guest, Renata, it actually made me feel more hopeful instead of like in despair on my bed yeah. reading climate change <laughs> books like yeah. is avoiding me and Jerry like going to save yeah. everyone's lives. Probably not. Um so that's great to know. And then one thing that we all talked about and you now hinted at a little bit is, you know, just how climate, the climate crisis is impacting health. And with everything that you know, what do you think you would like other medical professionals to know about how it is either presently impacting health or how they should expect it to impact the health of their patients in the future? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you could do an entire course on this, obviously. So there's a lot. 
Um, I mean, broadly, the most important thing to understand about climate change is that the climate is the underpinning for the human habitat. It impacts everything about how we grow food, what kind of places we can live in based on temperature niches that humans have been used to over the last 10,000 years. Um, you know, what kind of diseases we're exposed to. So it really impacts all the determinants of health. Um, so, you know, there's heat, um, people being exposed to heat waves, which those can be deadly. Um, there was a heat wave in Chicago in 1995 that killed 750 people, um, mostly wow. people of color because heat waves tend to be worse in neighborhoods that were redlined. Um, you also get heavier rainfall events and, um, those tend to contaminate water sources, both in rural and urban areas, um, which can cause a lot of problems and send kids to the ER with gastroenteritis. But, um, you know, people who are immune compromised can have a lot more severe consequences from that. Um, there's spread of novel diseases, so um, kind of West Nile virus coming into the U.S., other sort of tropical diseases moving up, Lyme disease is expanding. Um, and then also we're seeing that probably the increase, there's increased risk of pandemics uh, in the setting of climate change combined with um, ecosystem degradation and disintegration. Um, we're going to see decreased uh, staple crop production in much of the world, uh, which obviously increased food prices and puts people at more risk of hunger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously the wildfires uh, really are problematic and worsen air pollution. Um, we're already seeing increase in heart attacks after these wildfires. Um, and then the other piece is that warmer air holds more pollutants. It holds more smog. So you, that means worse asthma attacks, worse heart attacks, worse lung disease. Um, but then, as I said, the biggest thing is just all of those things happening at the same time as sort of increase in mass migration and hunger, really creating a lot of potential instability in society. Um, and that's where it's really hard to sort of project what kind of impacts it's going to have. But there's, there's a entire flip side to that question, which is that um, the activities that are causing climate change are already making us sick. And they have been mm -hmm. since we've been burning fossil fuels. But that means that we have a major opportunity to make people healthier. So there are probably 250,000 people a year who are dying from air pollution in the U.S. And that's even mm -hmm. in the setting of having passed the Clean Air Act, you know, in the 60s or early 70s. Um, so, but that's a lot of lives that we can save by acting on climate change just by decreasing air pollution alone. So, uh, there's actually, a, a, some new studies that came out recently showing that with our improved epide epidemiologic tools, we've realized that we were significantly underestimating the number of deaths from air pollution. And this is super important because if you, you know, if you, if the U.S. decarbonized over the next 50 years, it would probably be four and a half million lives saved. Mm -hmm. That comes out to about $37 trillion, um, which so along with other sort of increased productivity benefits, 
we're looking at $700 billion a year in benefits to the U.S. when most of the estimates say that it would probably cost like $300 billion a year to decarbonize. So just by avoiding the health impacts of air pollution alone, you more than double your cost of, um, of dealing with climate change. So it's just such an important message because people will be healthier society would be saving money it's yeah. just a no-brainer well i guess there's a lot of propaganda from the fossil fuel industry that like you know oh if we take any of these steps to make things greener you know where our economy is gonna be mortally injured and we'll never recover but mm -hmm. that seems to be just a lie at this point totally i mean anybody who says that is either using information that's 10 years old or they're lying I mean, uh, this, uh, those are the only two options. I mean, renewable energy is generally cheaper than new fossil fuels almost everywhere in the world. In many places, it's renewables plus storage is cheaper than fossil fuels. In some places, new, installing new renewables is cheaper than keeping existing fossil fuels running. So mm -hmm. there's just really no logical reason for the benefit of society to continue down the path that we're on. They're obviously mm -hmm. entrenched interests who want to keep doing things the way that they're doing. And us not transitioning to 100% clean energy economy is more, I think, about protecting their interests than it is about benefiting the public, to be honest. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of opportunity to switch away from the fossil fuel industry for a long time, but there have been people who have not wanted that to happen. And unfortunately, I think the propaganda runs pretty deep, but hopefully that can be changed in the very near future. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just grateful that clean energy has gotten so cheap so quickly. It really mm -hmm. it makes it a lot harder for people to argue against it. You know, you take a state yeah. like Wisconsin that I'm in, we don't produce any fossil fuels. We're exporting $14 billion a year for energy and making our people sicker by burning the fossil fuels that we're bringing in. So it's pretty hard to argue against shifting towards clean energy. It's really just a question of what exactly that looks like. Yeah. And I do know that, you know, it tends to be different state by state, but obviously there's a lot of area for improvement everywhere because mm -hmm. I was like, the reason I stumbled upon this is I was like looking at like state by state if it makes more sense to have like an electric vehicle or a hybrid or like a gas guzzling vehicle. And it was totally dependent on if your state gets their energy mostly from like fossil fuels mm -hmm. versus like more greener forms of energy or whatever. Yeah. But And those numbers are changing every year as the states shift towards renewables. So. There's almost mm -hmm. nowhere in the U.S. now where basically it doesn't make sense to buy an electric car from emissions perspective. Good to know because when I was looking at the data, it was from 2013, so it's yeah. probably outdated should, now. <laughs> yeah, that's from the union. If anybody's interested in this, this is um, from the Union of Concerned Scientists, um, and they update it every year to like look at the most recent mix. And I don't think that there are any places in the U.S. where essentially the the level is under like 55 miles to a gallon so, okay or like 65, good to know so 
Well, that's updated from my 2013 data I was sharing with <laughs> everyone, so that's great. So personally, do you I you clearly treat a lot of patients by being by the nature of your work and what you do and see a broad spectrum of people. Um, you know, it seems like sometimes it's hard to say this is this person's disease is from climate change or whatever since it can be subtle, but has there been times where you've been treating patients and it's been like very obvious to you that, you know, their symptoms or their disease or whatever is a resultant of uh, being in a bad environment. Yeah. Well, so I would say the first thing to point out is that every doctor every day is seeing people who are impacted by the burning of fossil fuels, whether they recognize it or not. I mean, the burning of fossil fuels worsens heart disease, lung disease, cancer, it causes, it increases the probability of stillbirths, increases the probability of premature births, causes um, developmental delays in children. Uh, and there really aren't any communities in the U.S. where people aren't exposed to significant amounts of air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. So that's the most important thing. Whether you can sort of point to the impact of climate change on your patients or not, all of your patients are being impacted by the burning mm -hmm. of fossil fuels. So that's the first thing. Um, but, you know, on a more personal level in terms of seeing the health impacts of climate change, when I was in Santa Rosa in residency, you would see people's just general health sort of decompensate uh, after some of these fires because their lives just fall apart. They're displaced from their homes. They're exposed to air pollution. Their, their ability to just sort of just manage their health kind of falls apart. And that's a big deal when somebody's health is already pretty marginal. You think about somebody with like heart failure who like really has to pay close attention to their health to make sure their fluid levels are sort of just right and that they're eating well. And then they get displaced from their home because of a wildfire and they maybe don't have their medicines. And somebody on that who is sort of on the edge and managing can just fall apart. Yeah. Um, and then back here in Wisconsin, you know, a lot of my patients were displaced from their homes, which causes a tremendous amount of um, psychologic trauma for these people, uh, especially because a lot of the areas that are prone to flooding are um, ten or a little bit more low income to begin with. So they're sort of mm -hmm. more marginal in their ability to adapt to those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's like, I mean, I'm just thinking about like someone who on the basic level, if you're displaced from your home and you have to eat, you're supposed to try to strive for a specific diet so that your health's in check and now you just have to eat like whatever chips are in the shelter or something like that and perhaps you don't have access to your medications or like, you know, um, there's just so many components to it, but mm -hmm. it's unfortunately pretty easy to see why something like being displaced from your home could then result in your whole health falling apart when it was already not doing well. Yeah. Or, so. I mean, if you look in California, I mean, the entire state of California, people couldn't go out and exercise for several weeks. I mean, this, you know that that's impacting people's health. Yeah. It just, and you know that that huge uptick in air pollution from those wildfires 
we know that it causes more heart attacks, more admissions with COPD exacerbations, more asthma exacerbations. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been well studied. So it's just, it's hard to, unless you're, have a mental frame where you're looking for the health impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. It's hard for people to see them because it's so foundational to people's health. You know, we tend yeah. to see the proximate causes of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about like mental health and stuff like that, um, you know, as things get worse, like in your country and in general, of course, I mean, being in psychiatry, of course, I it seems obvious to me why everyone's mental health is getting worse and people do have concerns that I feel like are directly related to, like you said, climate change or on a broader spectrum being in like a capitalistic society, um, you know, so it it unfortunately makes sense that people's physical health and mental health is just getting worse and worse. But I guess if you're like born into America and things are already this way or the world on a greater scale, you just sort of accept it as this is just normal and don't think about it as being specifically from climate change outside of like, you know, directly when there's a wildfire, when there's a flood or in those instances for people in those locations. Yeah. And that's where the health impacts of burning fossil fuels are so important for people to understand, like I said, because whether or not you have enough, whether or not a health professional has enough understanding to attribute, you know, the person in the ER in front of them to some impact of climate change, all of our patients are impacted by the burning of fossil fuels every day. Mm -hmm. And it's killing a lot of people every year. So, um, you know, even if climate change didn't exist, 250,000 deaths a year would be a reason to transition away from fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at what we're doing for COVID Mm -hmm. and we probably should have been doing a lot more a lot sooner. And that statistic is essentially how many people have, you know, died in America from COVID. And at least right now, presently, it's being taken, you know, it could be taken more seriously, but it's being taken seriously to a certain extent but um you know and when i see this stuff about covid all i can ever think about is is climate the climate crisis climate change what's going on is still invisible to most people but it's it's something where you know with something like covid or a viral thing eventually it'll pass and the world will recover but with the climate crisis, it's not like that. There's it's no like vaccine. Something has to change. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, there's no vaccine for climate change, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the comparison to COVID is interesting because on the one hand, it's sort of tempting to look at our utter failure to deal with COVID as well as we could and say, well, does that mean we're going to totally fail on climate change? Um, and that's certainly possible, but you know, we're the ones who get to decide the answer to that question. Yeah. But also I think there's some important differences between COVID and climate change. And one of the key ones is that unlike COVID, the dealing with climate change, isn't going to tank the economy. In fact, it's going to boost the economy. I mean, there are going to be millions of jobs created. There's a ton of work 
that needs to be done to decarbonize our economy. There's no mm-hmm. situation in which that doesn't create millions of good paying jobs. So, you know, you already saw it early on in the shutdowns. You saw this messaging saying, trying to tie COVID, uh, the COVID depression to the Green New Deal. We see, saw people mm-hmm. saying, oh, like if you deal with climate change, it's going to tank the economy. But that's just not true. I mean, people are going to be healthier. There's going to be a lot more jobs. Um, there's just no reason not to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's comforting. I think, you know, clearly that message needs to get out because I think I only realized that myself like incredibly recently from like talking to people. I thought it was like maybe – I didn't think it was negative for the economy, but I assumed it was like neutral or something like that, you know? That's a 50-year-old so. um, talking point that was outdated from the first time it was said. So, I mean, that argument came up during the passage of the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act is not only one of the most successful public health policies ever, but it was also one of the most successful economic policies ever. So... The um, industries that oppose the Clean Air Act, it turned out, significantly overestimated how much it actually ended up costing to clean up um, their smokestacks and their other sources of point pollution. Um, And if you look at the benefits of the Clean Air Act, for every dollar that was spent on sort of decreasing air pollution, there were $27 in benefits to the U.S. economy. And it cost them a lot less than they thought it was going to, to actually sort of update their power plants. And at the same time, there have literally been millions of lives saved since the Clean Air was pa- Clean Air Act was passed. So it's just... Those are some really great stats. <laughs> yeah. It's... It, but most people just don't know that, you know? Yeah. So, I mean... But the, a lot of this is news to me, so I love it. Yeah, but I tell you what, the Clean Air Act is on the ballot this fall. So. Well, another reason, please go vote in November. <laughs> and besides these groups that you've mentioned, I think you said it's generally called clinicians for... Um, climate action. Clim- yeah. Climate action, and they're state by state. So that mm-hmm. seems like a good place for people to start who want to get involved. Besides these groups, there anything else that you think that medical professionals should get involved with that's more specific to them than perhaps like a lay person to mm-hmm. slow down the climate crisis? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most important thing for health professionals to do is to vote this fall uh, on November 3rd or before. I learned recently to my surprise and horror that apparently doctors vote at a rate that's 10% less than the general population. Wow. Um, So first thing is vote. Um, And then educate yourself about this. But I, I think getting involved with one of these clinicians for climate action groups is important because health professionals, and and one of the reasons that I work on this from the perspective of a health professional is rather than sort of from a layperson perspective is that uh, health professionals are one of the most uh, respected voices in society. Mm -hmm. The approval, sort of general approval rating for doctors and nurses is north of 85%, which there are very few um, professions like that. And uh, as a doctor, I just, I have a we have access to uh, leaders that a lot of other people can't get, 
Like it's not that hard for us to get a meeting with our member of Congress, let alone our state legislators. So we have access. We have the skills to take complex science and interpret it in a way that's usable for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, very importantly, our job every day is to think about the worst case scenario or think about what could go wrong and help people avoid that. And that means that we have the training to say the things that need to be said and tell people the hard truths, which, frankly, there's just not enough of that on climate change. So so we have the skills, we have the access. Um, so I think it's really important for folks to get involved with these health professional-specific groups. Um, the other thing that I would say is to check in in the settings where you work, whether that's in a large, smaller health system or um, a small clinic, and see what they're doing to decrease their own emissions. Um, yes. The health system is about 10% of the, uh, the U.S. health system is about 10% of our carbon emissions. Um, mm-hmm. So it's important for health systems to decarbonize and to make sure that they're resilient to the impacts of climate change, can still deliver care. But then lastly, it's also important for health system leadership to engage on these policy questions. So, you know, Mm -hmm. most large health systems have lobbyists, they have state hospital associations, they're spending a lot of money advocating for policy. I think that they should be advocating for climate and clean energy policy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, vote, get involved with one of these clinicians for climate action groups, um, and then see what your health system is doing both to sort of clean up its own act and then to sort of be a good citizen in its community and advocate for policy. This is great because this is all giving me pointers about what I can do. And I'm excited because I was like before I was like, I don't know. I've, you know, obviously I've been doing things on the individual level, but then recently I've learned it, you really need to go beyond the individual level. Yeah. And if people are just, you know, changing their diet and staying inside their house and never going anywhere, it's not really going to, you know, save the world. So individual behavior is important as a statement of conviction. Yes. But in the end, it will not significantly move the needle. I mean, if you look at the peak of the shutdowns, carbon emissions only went down 7% and the world was just shut down. You know, I mean, if if anything else didn't tell you that there's a systemic problem, it's the fact that like nobody was flying, people weren't driving to work and most of the missions continued. I mean, that tells you that you need systemic policy change. And then, you know, individual change, again, is important. It's uh, necessary, but not sufficient, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there's sort of an analogy to recycling where I think individual behavior gets pushed as a way to distract people from demanding systemic change. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think my, a lot of people in my generation or like, you know, millennials have become very aware of this and then they, then they get sort of like, well, uh, you know, whether I eat Chick-fil-A or not is not going to change anything. So I'm just going to continue onwards with my life. But the reality is that at the very least, what we all can do if we care is, you know, try to affect these bigger systemic things that are going on. um, So that hopefully at some point, what you're doing as an individual also 
actually matter because the carbon emissions that are coming from these corporations will not be the most significant thing anymore. And that would be a goal, of course. Yeah. But yeah, I would like to reach a point where our individual behavior was the most important determinant of the emissions. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like feeling like what you do matters, but I am really happy because with having both you and our prior guests on, I feel like people, I mean, especially I feel like in medicine, like people are, it's not that people in in medicine aren't really aware of, uh, you know, the climate crisis and everything that's going on. I just think we're woefully uninformed and uneducated on the topic. So people will be like, yeah, it's, it exists, but then not really know anything that's contributing to it and therefore not really know what they can do to change things. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, as a practicing clinician, you spend all your day sort of running on a hamster wheel, trying to keep your patients healthy. And Mm -hmm. the health system isn't really designed to give us time to really look at these root causes, you know? And so, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people, it's, it's hard for them to take time out of their free time to work on this stuff. But yeah. Uh, for me, it's super satisfying. You know, I being someone who sort of pays attention to the underlying factors that are making my patients sick, it can, on the one hand, be really discouraging to see my patients coming in with diabetes and heart disease and, you know, trying to convince them to exercise, but knowing that, like, they just the community around them isn't structured for them to get physical activity as a default. And the food systems that are available aren't sort of providing them with easy access to healthy food. And that can be really discouraging. And, you know, my way of sort of dealing with that is to come home and at the end of the day to advocate for policies that are going to make their community healthier. And one of the reasons I choose climate change to work on is like I said, it impacts all these foundations of health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just, um, you know, I think people go into medicine and they they genuinely want to help people. But like you said, there's not a lot of time and, you know, get so fixated on just surviving yourselves. But hopefully, I hope, I think the what I've learned from both you and the prior guests has really helped me and hopefully can help other people uh, to just have something that they can do to contribute. Is there anything else that we didn't discuss that you think, you know, medical professionals who are listening should know? Yeah. I mean, we, we sort of bounced around it a little bit and sort of referred to it, um, You know, for the people out there who think a lot about climate change and are concerned about it or have patients who are distressed about it, uh, something I was told once is that action is the antidote to despair. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's very true. And it's been a really important realization for me. You know, I used to, I remember being in med school and like, you know, reading about climate change and sort of having these wild swings between being like really concerned and like trying to do something useful about it. And then just it being too much and just totally ignoring the problem for a period until I got really guilty. And then I would like think about it a lot. And I am just really grateful to have sort of connected with the folks that I'm connected with working on this because 
working on it consistently and having a sense that what I'm doing is of use helps me sort of get to a point where I'm like, well, I'm using my the skills that I've been given to the best of my ability to like be helpful on this problem. And mm-hmm. if my son asks me one day what I did, I'll be able to tell him, you know, like I did my best, you know, and that's all you can really ask for. And I don't spend as much just paradoxically, despite thing spending a lot more time thinking about climate change. I don't spend as much time worrying about it these days because like, I'm doing what I can, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people ask me specifically about like, oh, do you want to speak on like climate anxiety? Like what are your thoughts about climate anxiety? First off, I don't really like labeling anxiety because I think that anxiety is when you worry about, you know, things that are not likely to come to pass. <laughs> I think it's really yeah. fear. But, I, you know, yeah. because it's like – it's like a very legitimate concern. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a mental disorder by any means. That's I think like it's very valid. That's like standing in front of a bus anxiety. Yeah, you wouldn't call it that is. anxiety. You would say you would call it an adaptive emotional response that tells you to get yes. out of the way of the bus. Yeah, and but what you said is very right. Like when it's fear, you need to take an action. If it's a lion, you should probably like run away. Mm-hmm. Or if it's a a bus, get out of the way of the bus. And in, in this case, we've learned both today and the last time we recorded steps people can take to actually contribute to change. And I feel like for me, even just like I said, learning things from both you and our prior guest made me feel better because I was like, okay, here's things I can do. Before that, I was having like during the wildfire situation, I did have a period where I was like on my bed reading a climate book, potentially having breakdowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, I've evolved beyond that and now looking into things I, I can do. And I think it's like exactly what you said. I think humans are sort of meant to be able to take action against concerns, especially if they're valid and so, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, to your point, yeah, the sort of the the difference between the bus or the lion analogy and climate change is that the person standing in front of the bus can just like step out of the way. But the person with climate change, you know, it's this giant, huge, complex problem. And as you alluded to, empowerment is the question there. Like, what can you do that is useful, which, you know, we sort of touched on before. But to me, that's the crux of the issue. Like, how can you make use of the power that's available to you? And most health professionals have no idea how much power is available to them. It's just built into our position in society. And most of us just don't make use of it. But, you know, I am grateful that I uh, connected with some groups you know, about 10 years ago that sort of brought me to some meetings with um, our members of Congress and then I realized this is a meeting just like any other meeting. I've been in thousands of meetings. Yeah. We're you know? pros at that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then once you do that, you realize like, and then the other thing you realize is like as a health professional, if you spend like a short amount of time relative for us researching a particular question and you go into a room uh, with elected officials, generally you're going to be the expert on the topic in the room. Mm-hmm. We have a really high threshold for ourselves 
for sort of needing to feel expert on a question, but like a little bit of research relative to what we typically do will make us the expert in the room. So it's just, you know, I would tell people do some reading on climate change, call your member of Congress, call your state legislators and ask to talk to them about it. Doesn't need to be overly formal. Just like tell them that it matters to you, but like say that you want to talk to them directly and you'll find that it's way easier than you thought and that it's super satisfying and that it makes a difference Yeah. and then you can keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm inspired now. <laughs> I'm going to go literally look into how to do all this because, um, yeah, like you said, it doesn't sound too difficult. And if we have to go through like residency and give a bajillion presentations that are like an hour long and have to be total experts on a topic in front of like, you know, 50 people who have more experience mm-hmm. than us, like what's so difficult about calling up an elected official and talking to them if it could impact, you know, numerous people that you Mm -hmm. can't even count. Yeah, absolutely. And it's satisfying. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, This was really, really helpful. And thank you for taking time out of your day and coming on to this podcast. And I feel inspired and I hope that everyone else will feel inspired. And if they, the things we talked about sound too difficult, well, at least you can still vote in November. That's one easy thing to do and fix that statistic about, you know, doctors voting 10% (sighs) less than the general population. If you're a resident, you can find someone to cover your pager and go vote if you want to go vote in person. I'm confident that you can ask for that. I, I really appreciate you having me. It was a real pleasure talking with you. And um, come back anytime. Thank you for this consult.